Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where a bunch of mediocre art just won a lot of money. You can find us online at doubtcast.org or freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts. You can also listen to us on Public Reality Radio, 1680 AM WPRR, Ada Grand Rapids, 95.3 FM W237CZ Hudsonville, and 88.3 FM WPJC in Pontiac, Illinois, and as always, streaming at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher, and with me in the studio are my fellow doubtcasters, Mr. Jeremy Bean. Hey, how's it going? And Mr. Justin Schieber. Hello. Dr. Professor Luke Galen is off once again. Don't worry, he will be back eventually. I believe he's currently helping a kindly old shoemaker with his cobbling. He's that a, makes sense. He's an elfish little man is what I'm saying. He's a All right. wee bitty man. I'm <laughs> <laughs> On this episode, we have our interview with Vicki Garrison as a follow-up to the presentation offered in the last episode. Uh, she's a former member of the Quiverful Movement, um, an interview not to be missed. And coming up, we're talking about an atheist megachurch. We've got a shitlist nomination and more. But first, the gospel according to Bill O'Reilly. Yeah, Bill O'Reilly has a new book out called Killing Jesus. He claims his book is, quote, an accurate account of not only how Jesus died, but also the way he lived. And his mission, of course, in writing this book is to separate fact from myth. It's about time somebody did this. Because <laughs> yeah, Bart Ehrman really, right. you know, it's just, it's pitiful. And so, who better to separate fact from myth than right. Bill O'Reilly, the right? The no-spin zone. I know. Yeah, this is the guy to do it. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, he never really does indicate his methodology. And according to Candida Moss, uh, who we interviewed, the show. Yeah, yeah. we interviewed a couple episodes back, uh, she was the author of The Myth of Persecution. And who you can watch an uh, interview between her and Bill that is entirely frustrating. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, really tough to watch. It makes you feel really bad for her. <laughs> She's such a sweet, kind person, yeah. and to see her go up against this chronic asshole <laughs> is really, really hard to watch. But uh, nevertheless, Candida Moss wrote a review uh, on The Daily Beast called The Gospel According to Bill O'Reilly. In which she uh, she points out that Bill never really shares his method of research. Mm. In fact, it doesn't appear that he actually has one. Is there a, a bibliography or works cited in this book, or is it just see the Bible? I'm I'm not even sure. Unfortunately, mm. I have to admit I haven't read the book itself. You know, that's I to your credit. Wasn't planning to find too much enlightening within it. Yeah, Candida Moss says in that review, quote, without a method, killing Jesus has all the critical rigor of your local church's nativity play. Oh, that was my favorite <laughs> quote. Uh, and it's, it's pretty clear that Bill is not a scholar 
when it comes to the Bible. Yeah. Um, apparently, it's an interesting read. People say it, it is. Uh, it's it's fun. It's enough to keep you uh, into the text. Right. Apparently, and, it has lots of tidbits about the ancient world and the, and the, oh, yeah. the cultural context. I, he does. I think he knows a fair bit about at least some aspects of history. I think the Lincoln book he wrote recently was was considered fairly good. I mean, you I'm know. I'm not sure about that. No, but, really? Um, but I don't know. Maybe that's just what I heard on Fox News. Damn your sources. But there's just little there's just little things that come across in the book that make it clear that he he's not very famili- familiar with any kind of deep scholarship on this. Mm, so yeah. brief example, in the different gospels you find different accounts of Jesus' life. You find things repeated. Mm-hmm. In some cases, he seems to treat these as like separate instances, not different versions. So just coincidentally, not the discrepant accounts happening. of the same thing. So Jesus was ki- killed multiple times. Well, it's not like it's not never anything so ridiculous as <laughs> okay. Jesus being killed four times. No, all right. But it is things like Jesus under overturns the money changers tables That's twice. Very specific. That's very uh, really, yeah. really strange. Uh, so, yeah, some of these or there's like It was his favorite hobby. There's little pseudo history things that make it in there too. Uh uh, one part of the book, Bill O'Reilly says, quote, it is a fact that the disciples of Jesus traveled as far as India, Britain, and even into uh, sub-Saharan Africa, which it's not verified. Wow. Those, yeah. those things are, you know, not What, what would yeah. they have those done historically at all? Other criticisms uh, that, that Candida Moss brings up in, in her uh, review is that a lot of times when he wants to discuss a, partic- a particular story, he'll use the gospel that has the most content to that story, the longest narrative yeah, sure. of that story, rather than the earliest. Which, of course, is You'd have to actually be a scholar right. to know what the earliest or, you know, pay any attention or, I mean, to the text. If, if you want to find out what happened, you would generally, all things being equal, you would want to go with the earliest source, not the mm-hmm. one that has the most to say about it necessarily. Right. right. And, as you might expect, Jesus, through the eyes of Bill O'Reilly, has quite a conservative... <laughs> motivation for what he's doing. Well, he found um, the verses in in John where Jesus op- uh, opposes Obamacare, yeah, which I right. thought was. <laughs> right. I mean, that's that's scholarship right there. Yeah, Jesus Jesus wouldn't have been into free health care no. for <laughs> healing know. the sick, no. providing for the poor. That does not because, sound like the because Jesus the Gospel of Mark isn't full of uh, free exorcisms and healings, yeah, right. like pretty much the entire thing. Yeah, according to Bill, this is why Jews were anticipating the Messiah to begin with uh, because, quote, when that moment arrives, Rome will be defeated and their lives will be free of taxation and want. (laughs) Oh, well, there you go. And he also seems to think that's why Jesus was targeted for execution. Uh, His uh, his Obama. He didn't like taxes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Jesus challenged taxation. So that's uh, why he, he... has it's, Jesus overturning the the money changers right, right. tables and twice. that's when the like, Romans collecting my taxes <laughs> that's when the Romans realize their revenue stream is threatened and they decide oh to crack down now as you might expect with uh Bill O'Reilly there's elements of truth to that and then just things that are preposterous mm-hmm. it is true that uh that the Sanhedrin cracks down on Jesus as a result of of his disruption in the temple mm-hmm. sure it's also true that Yes, uh, the the Roman the Romans taxes were uh, were very oppressive and uh, yes. were causing a lot of pain in Judea at that time. But it's also true that even if the Romans were away, the Jewish law would have required they'd have to 
tithe 10% of their income to support the temple anyway. Right. And, uh, and, and it's also true that Jesus, when specifically asked how he felt about the Romans' taxation mm-hmm. policy, he said, render on to Caesar what is Caesar's. I, I was just thinking that, yes. These are the, yeah, these are the things of the world. So it's not something that you need to worry about accumulating wealth. Right. Oh, and speaking of accumulating wealth, too, Candida Moss, I believe, um, um, talked to him about this point where Jesus says that in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to give up your earthly possessions, right? right? Yeah. And he claims that, that that's not um, something that we should take seriously. Yeah, he says right? he says uh, he accuses Candida Moss of taking the Bible literally. <laughs> <laughs> At that point, you fundamentalist, you're just taking the Bible literally. I, I want to read this brief passage in Matthew 10 that they're fighting over. This is where the rich man goes to Jesus and says, I've followed the law my whole life. Uh, what else should I do to get into the kingdom of heaven? And this is in Matthew 10, starting verse 20. Jesus says, there is still one thing you haven't done. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad, for he had many possessions. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard is it for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God? This amazed them. But Jesus said again, Dear children, it's very hard to enter into the kingdom of God. In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That's a parable, Jeremy. That's (laughs) clearly a parable. Yeah. (laughs) I, it seemed more like a direct teaching. You yeah, know? doesn't it? It seems more like One this guy was few. asking specifically, what do I have to do to get to heaven? He got mm-hmm. a straightforward answer and then there was a little lesson about it. Um, Jesus much but, clearer on this than he is on gay marriage or abortion or, you know, most anything else. But you know what? There's there's not a Christian on this planet that wants to take that message seriously, right? Believers get used to allegorizing verses that might be inconvenient to mm-hmm. take on a plain reading. And uh, Bill O'Reilly appears to do the same and yeah. appears so, to ignore most of the other more socially progressive themes. So it would be unfair to criticize O'Reilly too much for an inconsistent methodology because, as we've shown on the show before, that's a pretty common theme. Yes, with anybody. Nietzsche said, theology teaches bad reading. <laughs> I probably botched that quote. Yeah. Where's, where's Dan Finca when you need him? Yeah. But uh, it's definitely worth uh, watching the video of the interview with Kendi DeMoss and yeah, Bill O'Reilly. It's frustrating. If yeah. for no other reason yeah. than to, to give you a reason to hit your head against a wall because yeah. it is – Deeply frustrating. It just it just blows my mind to like how a conservative could just pass over all the help for the poor passages <laughs> and everything else and like zero in on it was taxes. Yep. Mm-hmm. I mean, Th- I know confirmation story. bias. I'm familiar yeah. with the data, <laughs> right. but, but but at the same so time, it's just one-sided. astounding sometimes. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is amazing. But uh, luckily, there's there's hope for us atheists, right? There's a new movement to help us come together and non-worship together. It is the new atheist megachurch. This comes from an article, Atheism Starts Its Megachurch. Is it a religion now? 
by Katie Englehart for Salon.com. I don't like that title. It seems yeah. very suggestive. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's kind of testing my patience <laughs> already. The, just the, the look title. on Dave's face kind of brought that to the surface too. Well, and, and this came up just recently too. I think in the last episode we were talking about the humanist chaplain trying to right. – um, and, and that's starting to blur the lines between you know humanism as a religion versus a philosophy and right. all of that. And this is just another one of those, hey, how come – you know why can't you be religious? Just two. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's talk about it a little bit first. It's it's called the Sunday Assembly, and it started this past January in London. Their motto is "Live better, help often, and wonder more." Pretty the, catchy. The author of this article describes it uh, the way he describes it. It sounds almost identical to our little hipster mega church in our area, oh, uh, no. the Mars Hill, <laughs> Rob Bell's old church. Yeah. L- yeah. Listen to this description. The assembly had a wayward, whimsical feel. There was a table by the door and ladies served us homemade cakes and the house band played Cat Stevens. Our our priest – Cat Stevens. Get this. Get this. Our priest wore pink skinny jeans. Many of the attendees were modish 20-somethings and were pretty obviously hungover. (laughs) (laughs) There's Mars Hill. Mars Hill, man. Mars Hill 2AT. Yeah, we got our own megachurch now, uh, the the atheists. By the way, interesting that Um, they're using Cat Stevens' music when Cat Stevens is now a very outspoken Muslim. Yusuf Ali. Yusuf Ali. Of course, he wasn't when he was Cat Stevens. Uh, But they seem to be doing quite well. Uh, uh, As I said, they opened in this past January, and mm-hmm. as of the summer, they had uh, almost uh, anywhere from 400 to 600 regular attendees. This is in so, London, which is yeah, a good place for it. Not a mega church by American standards, no. but that is still uh, – I would be incredibly impressed to see any kind of atheist organization exactly. here pulling yeah. that kind of numbers mm-hmm. and so quickly. Uh, but that success. I feel like you just defended mega, American megachurches. Like they got nothing on us. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we should recognize that our our entire listening audience, which is quite large, we could pack them into Mars Hill like over three services. We could pack our yep. whole audience into one. Big mega Let's church. do it, um, guys but, from yeah. all over the world. Reasonable come on doubts in. fest. We are. Yeah. Gonna, yep, we're gonna have. A we festival. need every single damn. We're one gonna of fly you. everyone in. Yeah, <laughs> tickets yeah. are a thousand dollars each. And could you please donate a thousand dollars per person? <laughs> yeah. um, Suggested donation. Free, free plane ticket for thousand dollar donation. <laughs> so I'm I'm impressed with uh, the Sunday Assembly's success, yeah. but uh, it sounds like it might be going to their head. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, they're release, they have press releases that are saying uh, things like, with this 3,000% growth rate, we might be <laughs> oh the fastest God. growing church in the world. Oof. They have already launched a program to get branches opened in 22 cities in England, Ireland, Scotland, Canada, the United States, and Australia. And they did this in a two-month period. Be- being funded by Indiegogo in part. Well, right. right. That's their new campaign. Mm-hmm. They want to start a second wave of this. And they're – yeah, they're asking for $800,000 to do this. Yeah. That's they, five. 100,000 euro. They're organizing this like a corporation. The article Mm -hmm. says that they were inspired by TEDx. They will deliver materials and let you use their branding and logo and everything once you go through a certain probationary period to prove your worth. Mm -hmm. As people on this podcast know, we – we all support the idea of creating communities for atheists. Yes, certainly. Uh, 
including communities that provide some of the social services that mm-hmm. church churches do. Now, how closely we want to emulate the church model is another question. But I can say right off the bat here, you know, we're familiar in this area with the difficulties of herding cats. And this seems to be almost brash optimism about their chances. Yeah. You know, groups like this can swell for a short amount of time and then easily fizzle out. There's a lot of turnover in membership. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And geographically, the places where you think uh, atheist group would thrive are often not the places where they'll thrive. Right, like in New York, California, yeah. Chicago, major metropolitan areas where you have yeah. a lot of people and a lot of non-believers are often not the best places for these kinds of groups yeah. because they don't need the community the they, way absolutely. they have a lot of Michigan. other outlets to plug into. Yeah. They may not feel as threatened by a religious majority in their area. And of course, London would would fit nicely into that uh, that so category. They seem to have an awful lot of faith that this is going to work. Beyond that, I'd like to say there's a reason why the church model is so successful. Group singing, inspirational sermons, and pastors who can serve as role models and spiritual guides, this has a really powerful effect on group psychology and can easily devolve into a cult of personality. In fact, Jerry DeWitt had some statements to this effect. Uh, He wasn't exactly addressing – the Sunday Assembly churches here, but uh, he had this to say. And real quick, if you don't know who Jerry DeWitt is, uh, he's a former Pentecostal preacher, and and now he's an atheist. He was one of the first to sign on to the clergy project that we talked mm-hmm. with. Uh, the Dan Barker yeah. project. Yeah. DeWitt says, "Quote: One of the joys I celebrate in escaping from religion and church is no longer participating in this unbridled authority and reverence given mm-hmm. to the pastor." Mm-hmm. A secular church in the hands of a cult personality is a religion disguised as a humanist community, and the atheist community doesn't necessarily need more evangelists. Now, that quote comes from uh, another article, the Religion News Service, uh, an article called Skeptics Wonder If Ex-Clergy Should Lead the Atheist Movement by Ken Chitwood. Mm-hmm. And what they're talking about is concerns that um, some of these some of these pastors out of project uh, out of the clergy project are very quickly assuming positions of authority within the movement and just like they did when yeah, they were religious and some of them pushing for this kind of church context. Yeah. Mm. And while nobody so far is you know calling names or saying this is a big problem, it's at least prompted a little bit of discussion mm-hmm. uh, amongst some others in the clergy project. And you have people like DeWitt and others urging that we invite these pastors into our communities with open arms, of course, but that we thoroughly vet them before we let them. That we're not necessarily setting them up as as leaders right away. He says uh, we need to we need to screen them and make sure what their motivations are. Make sure that quote their integrity matches their charisma. And I, I think that's a I think that's a good word of warning. I don't think yeah. we should turn on these people because uh, you know some of us were heading in the clergy direction before we joined the movement. Right. But I think that's a reasonable concern, and uh, and one I have about the atheist churches as churches in general. Yeah, I, I, it, as soon as I read this article, it really made me uncomfortable, and I couldn't. Exactly explain why. I mean, some of it is is just kind of a visceral. I don't like going to church. I don't like right, sitting. Right. You know. And so it's so it's it's. We got to be careful not to say that that's the issue that we're having. Yeah, it's exactly. If it's just a matter of taste. Then right. Different strokes for different folks. A- absolutely. But I I 
like uh, uh, the point there. This is, you know, we don't want to fall into the same traps that religions fall into, which is, you know, authoritarianism Absolutely. and so forth. Yeah. And it's very hard to organize a group without that kind of authoritarianism. Especially yeah. if there's one pastor at the top. I think maybe yeah. maybe one way for these atheist churches to protect against that a little bit is to spread out uh, leadership roles yeah, for and sure. teaching roles. It's, I, I'm mostly concerned about the kind of, you know, just the swooning over the pastor that you see. Yeah. Well, he's and part of this pink comes, skinny jeans. Yeah. So, mm. part of this coming, comes from me training to be a minister and yeah. hanging out with all the other people in that program and, and starting to notice like, my God, this is like, this is a room full of narcissists. Yeah. This is, for a lot of preachers and, and a lot of politicians and anyone mm-hmm. in, in a position of power like that, it's an ego thing as much or more than it is about anything else. Yeah. So like what I like about um, – And we're instance, not immune to that. For like no, – for instance, CFI Michigan uh, could be seen as, you know, um, you know, some outsider might look at this and see it as a kind of church. But, mm-hmm. but what we're doing is every other week we're having someone completely different – Yes, it's a different right. speaker. It's talk, not, and not all people who agree with our, you know, with Absolutely. the typical positions on things. Yeah, either. there's there's many times where where the you know Q and A session happens and mm-hmm. there's disagreement, but but uh, and that's what's important. Like our the leadership isn't necessarily uh, the most visible in. in our yeah, they're community. not necessarily the ones who are important. running each of the presentations. Absolutely. We're bringing in other people, and, and that's a great way that they, that's a great strategy that they could employ to protect themselves. And the, and that may be what they're doing with the Sunday assembly. I don't know their day to day operations. I don't know if they have the same person. I guess talking right. to see week, more. So. Yeah, they're yeah, starting one up in Chicago. Maybe we could take a road trip down there sometime That'd and visit. Fun. That would be awesome. Sure, um, but yeah, there's there's just a part of me, and maybe it's just. Just an emotional reaction. You hate non gods. That's uh, there's some truth in that. In that, it's just atheismo into your heart. (laughs) I I don't like making it easier for people to say atheism is a religion because that causes a lot of problems for us because it's not accurate Um, and it leads to a lot of false assumptions about atheism and you know. I was having this discussion with my daughters just today and, and one of them said uh, – my 16-year-old said, yeah, calling atheism a religion is like calling bald a hair color. <laughs> and I was so proud because that's one of my favorite lines. But uh, <laughs> you know, so it gets, t- it gets tricky. But you know what? There's a lot of different kinds of atheists out there and certainly there are some that this appeals to. What we really need to do, I think, is define the different groups of atheists out there. We need to really set up a, a schema for determining what kind of atheist everyone Are is. Are you suggesting a rigorous methodology? No, or? not at all. I'm <laughs> suggesting we guess. Uh, and Jeremy. And that's the subject of today's God Thinks Like You. Yes, today uh, we're going to briefly discuss a study that is making its way around the atheist blogosphere, whatever the hell we want to call it. The study is called Atheism, Agnosticism, and Non-Belief, a Qualitative and Quantitative Study of Type and Narrative by Christopher F. Silver of the University of Tennessee, Chattanooga. That sounds very scientific and fancy. Yes, it does. Though I must say, I'm probably a bit prejudiced against this study uh, from it's the very you beginning. Love Luke. 
Uh, part of it comes from my affection for Luke, <laughs> but uh, and we'll explain why that factors in here in just a moment. But the first thing is uh, whenever I see qualitative. Hmm. Um, now I, you know, I'm a humanities guy, so I'm I'm not gonna. I don't want to take cheap shots at the humanities, but I generally am one of those guys who I like quantitative methods. I like to see numbers with my data. Sometimes qualitative, what what passes as a qualitative study, sometimes they can be really good and sometimes in my opinion they can be nothing more than just how the researcher happens to see it. Right. And I'm not clear what is the case with this particular study. Maybe my second reason for being initially critical is that the study boasts – itself to be the most extensive study of non-belief to this date. Well, which really? is so it's got to be a lot of people, right? Because uh, our friend and colleague Luke Galen did the what's the name of his survey? Right, this is already becoming a pissing match. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's okay. <laughs> but that's okay. Yeah. Um, well, so this survey has fifty nine personal interviews. Is what it's, wait, uh, it's, I'm sorry, fifty nine thousand? Yeah, no, fifty nine. Wait. Yes, and it's basically so just less a, than sixty people. It's basically just a survey on how people self-identify. So here's where it gets personal, right? Uh, our <laughs> co-host Luke Galen, who is not here today, he did the non-religious identification survey, which had hundreds, if not thousands. I'm blanking on the exact number. I, I in think the it was like set. fifty-three. Yeah, his right? pilot study had <laughs> his pilot study had more than fifty-nine uh, yeah. respondents in it. And actually used a broad number of measures to kind of dice up that data. And, uh, and this particular study science. just doesn't have it. No. But I have a feeling that this, this study is already getting more exposure than ones that are much more rigorous. Mm-hmm. Just Nevertheless, wait Luke's, Luke's book comes out. That's here is the, there's not much given in the study as to the methodology. It mm-hmm. seems that they had open-ended interviews with these people. Then they had some way of coding the data and looked for trends, but they don't tell us anything about how that process happened, what kind of questions they were asking, if if any. Um, But anyways, here's how it breaks down. And these categories are somewhat intuitive. It proposes six categories that we can uh, fit atheists into. And the whole point of this study, right, is that in a lot of surveys of these types, uh, all the non-religious get dumped together into this right. one category. Including non- spiritual right. and hardcore atheists and everything in between. And we've talked about how we need finer grain definitions here to split up the non-religious into different groups. And we've even talked about other studies that have proposed mm-hmm. uh, how to do that. And, th- and this study proposes its own way. It says uh, we'd be best to separate these into uh, atheists and agnostics into six separate categories. Uh, so let me just go over them real quick. The categories are intellectual atheist or agnostic, activist atheist or agnostic, seeker agnostic, anti-theist, non-theist, and ritual atheist or agnostic. And here's the descriptions of each. Okay. I'm not going to read the entire descriptions. I'm just going to pull out a few phrases and buzzwords from each one. So intellectual atheist or agnostic, uh, they say they're avid readers proactively acquire knowledge, they enjoy debate, they tend to cite off authors in their discussions and associate with fellow intellectuals regardless of their intellectual position as long as they're informed. 
quote, the modus operandi for intellectual atheist agnostic is the externalization of epistemologically oriented social stimulation. In other words, talking about theories of truth. The activist is described as not content with simply holding a non-belief position, which kind of pisses me off because I'm like, all right, I'm pretty sure I'd be hedged into the intellectual atheist category. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, uh, but I'm not content with that right. either. Are, mm -hmm. are, are they mutually exclusive categories? No, or can right, you, There'd you, have you, to be tons of because, overlap, yeah. but, they, but they treat them later on in the survey as they work from those categories to then show how do they score on certain personality measures. Mm -hmm. oh, I so I, I guess they're not really treating them as mutually exclusive, but – you You're going to fall into get, one of the six categories. You get hedged into one of yeah. the categories depending and on – You can be a certain yeah. percentage but ultimately you're going to end up with the label for, yeah. for one. OK. Yeah. So uh, the activists are not uh, not content with just holding a non-belief position. They are proactive regarding current issues in the socio-political sphere. They tend to support movements uh, such as for egalitarianism, feminism, LGBT issues. And uh, environment, animal rights, separation of church and state, that sort of thing. Quote, the activist atheist agnostics are not idle. They uh, efficate their interests and beliefs. Then you have the seeker agnostic. These people keep an open mind in relation to the debate between religious and spiritual. They recognize the limitations of human knowledge. They actively search for and respond to Knowledge and evidence supporting or disconfirming truth claims, as if the intellectual atheists don't. They recognize current scientific limitations and embrace scientific uncertainty. Uh, some of them may generally miss being a believer, either for the social benefits or the emotional connections they had with others. Quote: For the seeker, agnostic uncertainty is embraced. Okay, yeah, I'm already kind of scoffing at this. Yeah, see what I'm saying? <laughs> now, already. Intellectuals seem like they should be joined together. Well, uh, uh, I mean, yeah. <laughs> the intellectual clearly is going to embrace uncertainty and understanding the limits of, of, of human abilities, as, as one would as, think. As, yeah. as it referred to in the last sentence, it's mm -hmm. a, they enjoy discussion. Uh, relating to epistemology, and that's exactly. But then we're suggesting too that that intellectuals are not seeking, that the activists are not necessarily intellectuals, and that intellectuals and seekers are not interested in activism. Yeah, it's, and you know, let me be clear: yeah. the authors hedge and qualify and yeah, say all these things that there's overlap. But nevertheless, if you are treating these as very right. clear categories, and I, we're I think be picking some nits. people will yeah. take. Yeah, people will take that as a conclusion. Mm -hmm. Uh, added to that is the anti-theist. The anti-theist is diametrically opposed to religious ideology and proactively and aggressively asserts their views towards others when appropriate, seeking to educate theists in the passé nature of their belief. They view religion as ignorance and religious institutions as backward and socially detrimental. So so far, I feel like I fall into all of the categories. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. <laughs> but and yet, I would never use the the term what agnostic seeker. That word was born out of out of youth groups. So yeah, right. It's it's too... well. I mean, we do have like like questing religiosity uh, is yeah, a similar yeah. similar notion. Yeah. I'm a seeker, man. Oh, dude, come to my church. Mm-hmm. The non-theist is uh, basically just pegged as apathetic and disinterested. 
And okay, yeah. uh, doesn't have anything to do with religion because it's just not a part of their just life. Just doesn't care. Yeah. Uh, that I, I, I would recognize that as a distinct that group I of would, yeah, that's, I would. That's the one that's where I category. feel like, yep, yep, that's a firm category. And, and I, I do, plenty of people like that. Yeah, and I do think when, when we're talking about religious versus non-religious people, I think we do need to filter out um, that group of non-religious people, which is – one of the things that Luke studied. Not filter out, but make a distinction. Well, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I don't ignore <laughs> them, but, but clarify the difference. And this right. other one I'm, I'm open, a little more open to seeing as a discrete, uh, category too. Uh, the, uh, they s- say the ritual atheist agnostic is open about their lack of belief, but they find utility in the teachings of some religious traditions. They tend to participate in specific rituals and ceremonies, they might do meditation, yoga classes, or, or observe holiday traditions. Mm-hmm. They proceed. Uh, uh, they they like ceremony and ritual. They view it as producing personal meaning in life. Like uh, um, what is it, Bob Price, who who goes to church every Sunday because he likes the ritual? That yeah. sort of uh, a lot of atheists who attend like univer- uh, Unitarian Universal yeah, congregations yeah. and something like that. I, I think I think that's. Uh, uh, again, there's still overlap. But there's huge overlap. Yeah. But uh, that's that's a bit more of a distinct and, and clarified. That feels subgroup. to me like yeah, something that you really could. You have you have the atheists who attend church and the right. atheists who don't yeah. attend church. Yeah. yeah. These categories can be somewhat intuitive. They can mm-hmm. kind of yeah. uh, they can match our experiences, or sometimes they seem to overlap way <laughs> too much. But you know that that's kind of the point. Is I want to get beyond. How things seem, anyways. <laughs> you right. know, I, I what I'm really interested in is in some of these other divisions that we saw. For example, in our God thinks like you last time, mm-hmm. when we were looking at those intelligence studies and the different ways people broke down into that. Those were trends that you couldn't just you you wouldn't just pick up by intuition. Mm-hmm. Those right, were trends right. that once you crunched the numbers, you started to see kind of a structure to it yeah. and. And it was that uh, – that was what they used to derive their particular categories. And essentially when I talked to Luke about this, uh, uh, the, the, good, the good doctor professor, that's what he had to say. He said mm-hmm. uh, you know, what they really should have done is use some sort of cluster criteria to, to perform a cluster analysis and see what, see what divisions these uh, data – the data suggested, which they may have done actually. We just don't know. They don't talk about their methodology. Well – and let me do some quick math here. I'm actually using a calculator because I'm bad at math. Okay, so we had 59 people used in this study, and they came up with six categories. That comes to just shy of nine people falling into each of those categories. What a limited way well, yeah, to and the non-theist, suss this out. The non-theist one, they admitted that that no one, not too many people, self-identified as that. They were just talking about other people they know. They were just it's so totally anecdotal. So it wasn't really? even an interview. Yeah, which is interesting because I think we all acknowledge that that's probably the group that is the most distinct from the other ones. Even though no one from that group was actually, yeah. no one actually self-identified it from the study. Is so, it, what do they do with these categories? Oh, do we? Know, I, mean, I was just going to ask. Do we know how? Um, how they got the respondents to these? Did they go to like secular groups? Well, it was like done that? at a college. Everyone there is an atheist, okay. right? Because they <laughs> well, the guy who did this study is a member of um, 
the uh, Chattanooga Free Thought Association. Hmm. Okay. So it could just be a poll so of the people and, uh, in the groove. That was another limitation of the data is this was almost all out of um, – they said their sample was mostly observed within the southeast. Very localized. Uh, yeah. And so they have – they like have a data table on how do the – Northeast, South, Midwest, and West regions break down in mm-hmm. these, you know, and you could just go across the 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 <laughs> table here, and the South just has the largest numbers. But <laughs> no data, that's who no they data, sampled. no data. South, yeah. yeah. So it's it's like I, there's a little bit of data for the rest. A hundred percent of atheists polled, atheists polled, lived in Albuquerque. Um, <laughs> where'd you do your yeah. study? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah, it's kind of. I, I felt that was or Chattanooga, I guess, is where it was. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, there might be some interesting things they do with this data. For one, they, they show the frequency of the intellectual atheist is by far the highest out of their sample. But again, and, if uh, you were dealing with with a group of yeah, uh, a free-thinking group, so and I don't know if that's where he this, got his tools from. Was this from. how they got their data? It's that very was. self-selective. That's, that's yeah. what concerns me, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, the other thing they did with the data was they uh, they have a chart on nominal comparison of scales by non-belief types. So they take personality scales, mm. things like autonomy scales, positive relations with others, a narcissism scale, dogmatism scale, anger inventory, and that kind of Do thing. Do they factor in the autism spectrum? Because I'm a little afraid of the results. Well, of that see, one. and that's even a, if this was a if this real if this was a good empirical mm. study, they might want to control for yeah. different things like that. Um, but this is. Um, I'm going to do a Luke here since I'm subbing for Luke today. I'm going to show you a chart. <laughs> see, see people. Oh, on Luke the, would be proud. See, see people in this audio <laughs> format only podcast. Can you see this chart? And I can't even read it from over here, does, let alone our listeners. Yeah, does that oh make does that make you miss him? It does. <laughs> here's here's what the chart does. We don't even have figures. We don't even have scores for these for these scales here. We just have – we're told who had the lowest score and the highest score. So we're told that agnostics score the best – But now the how they got the scores. Automaty- so we don't autonomy. know even the the, uh, the relation of like you know this, there's a bigger gap between these two. We no. have no, no indication. We're just told who scored the highest and who scored the lowest without a score. So uh, positive relations with others, anti-theists do the worst at that. Well, duh. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, ritual atheists do the best. Wow, what uh, an yeah, insight. Shocking. It's I'm starting to feel bad now because because I, I know these these people. Dude, he's probably listening and he's crying. Yeah, I know. <laughs> play, play Christopher F. Silver is going to hear this and he's really proud of the study he did. And you know what? His, His brother Nate Silver is going to call him and just be very <laughs> angry with him. Why aren't you using the numbers? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know what? What he his motivation and and uh, what he wants to see done is right on. We really do need higher right. resolution. We need better categories. I think categories. there's value to a study like this. It's we're just not there, and this certainly is a way to you know if it's a initial uh, testing the waters kind of study, this could be something. But there needs to be much more rigorous methodology. And you know what? We're all conditioned by hanging out with Luke yeah. to really like the numbers and the data, mm-hmm. and so uh, a qualitative survey. Uh, might be of interest to sociologists and mm-hmm. and other things like that. 
Uh, but I guess I'll end with Luke's kind of snarky comment that oh, he gosh. sent me in an email. I'm glad he can be here in spirit. That's, yeah, that's, that's great. Nice. Yeah, well, one thing I can mention is that he said with these this nominal comparison of scales, he said, you know, this could be interesting, but it's it's worthless until we know what criteria they yeah. use to select their categories. Mm-hmm. Question, was this actually like published like without any of the methodology exposed? That's the same question I was asking myself because I'm I'm looking at this and I'm going this has to be a summary of the research. This 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 can't be the study itself. But I went through it over and over again and I didn't find I didn't find any paper that it was published in. It was just on the University of Chattanooga's um so he just posted University to the University of Tennessee, yeah, yeah, posted there. Weird. And it's uh, not a peer review. it had a few works cited yeah. uh, for the announcement. You know, I, it could be I'm just an idiot and I'm not seeing the link to the real study. If that's the case, <laughs> I will make an extreme apology in the next episode. <laughs> but I scanned this several times, like looking for a reference to the actual study sure, and sure. more stuff, and I didn't find it. And yeah. usually you don't get reviews with like you know these these charts and stuff that they have, even if they're not like numbers numbers. In the end, uh, here is kind of Luke's parting comment on this. Yeah, when I read this, I was really expecting some sort of empirical basis, but I didn't see any quantitative criteria used to delineate the groups. Obviously, I'm a quantitative partisan. It's called science, bitches. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Jesse Pinkman. Uh, Nice. So, yeah. My apologies uh, to the author of this study. Thank you for helping the cause. We're data people over here. Uh, on that note, um, <laughs> I got really quiet. Just <laughs> well, anyways, um, that's our uh, maybe not the most enlightening. God thinks like you ever, but we do feel that uh, people are reading this article a lot. This is being picked up. By it's the good to talk about press. the stuff that's yeah. out there, and we wanna we wanna make people aware that there are. Don't believe the tagline: the most extensive study on on yeah. secularism to date. There are plenty of really really good studies to go out there and access. And one of the places where you can find this is, as always, our show. We tend to talk about this research quite a bit. Another really great resource to go to is the Epiphenom blog that Tom Reese puts out. Mm. A lot of that's on religious psychology, but nevertheless, all sorts of secularism studies out there. You want to familiarize yourself with with the state of the field. Those are some good resources to check out. And now moving on, we have an interview with Vicki Garrison. Last episode, we had Vicky on uh, giving a presentation, a speech about how she got gradually seduced into the quiverful movement, the quiverful movement being a trend amongst fundamentalists in America, still on the fringes but gaining in popularity, which encourages women to view their wombs as weapons in the culture wars here in America. In other words – if you can't vote the evil secularists out of office, maybe we could breed them out, mm-hmm. often tied to dominionist theologies. The idea, of course, is that Christians can reclaim the culture for God if they have enough babies. Vicki Garrison got sucked into this lifestyle and had to endure great hardships and even serious risks to her health mm-hmm. as a result. She eventually broke out of the Quiverful movement, but that's where we left her last time. So luckily, Vicky joins us in the studio now to tell us about what happened after she left the movement. How did she rebuild her life and what is she doing to help other Quiverful moms like herself to get out of these abusive contexts? So here's our interview with Vicki Garrison. 
Vicki, thank you so much for joining us on Reasonable Doubts. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Your story is absolutely incredible. (laughs) When your talk ended, the first thing that occurred to me is I want to know what happened after that. We last left you. uh, You had had this long correspondence with your uncle. And you had begun to question your faith, to question the Bible. And as you said, it was like a house of cards. You remove the authority of the Bible and suddenly your entire worldview toppled. And you had found the freedom to eventually leave the Quiverful movement, get a divorce, and uh, start enrolling your your children in public school. Can we pick up the story there? And, and uh, uh, what was the aftermath of your decision? Okay, well, it was a terrifying experience when I realized that I did not believe anymore everything that I had based my life on. And, you know, talk about leaving Quiverful, you you can, I lost my faith, but everything that I had built my entire life still focused on all of that. I still had seven kids. Mm -hmm. I still was publishing a Christian pro-life, pro-family newspaper Everything was still there. My whole life was still there, but I had changed my thoughts so much that, you know, and I had heard about atheists Mm -hmm. in in the church. You know, I remember a pastor, and I thought it was so hilarious at the time. He said, atheists don't have any morals, that they're only, you know, rebelling against God because they want to be able to do whatever they, you know, be able to sin without feeling guilty, et cetera. And I remember one pastor quoted Francis Schaeffer, mm-hmm. who said that atheists have both feet firmly planted in midair. And at the time, I thought that was so clever. And then I found myself in that position hmm. where, yeah, I I had built my whole life on this firm foundation, the solid rock, you know, on Christ, the solid rock I stand. And all of a sudden, that wasn't there. I did not have that underpinning of absolutes, Mm -hmm. of chapter and verse for everything. And, yeah, it was this experience where, like, now what? What do I do with my life? And I fully expected to get depressed, Mm -hmm. like seriously, seriously depressed. I fully expected to just give up on my entire life because everything I was doing was because of Christ. And without Christ, why would I keep it up? And so I was expecting this major crash and burn. And what happened instead is like life goes on. Mm -hmm. And I still had my kids. I had gotten the divorce. Um, You know, we made the decision to put them in school and everything. And so, you know, it's just day by day you have to make choices. And I would figure things out. I didn't have chapter and verse, but I started using common sense. I started using, um, you know, research tools. It's not like I, I was stupid the whole time, but now I could think outside that box and just, you know, weigh pros and cons the way that everybody else, you know, basically comes to decisions. And as I did that, um, day by day, you know, time went by and I realized I wasn't depressed. I remember... <laughs> Uh, one time I was at the mall with my kids, and my kids, you know, they just kind of came alive after that because mm. all of a sudden they didn't have all of this structure. I mean, when I say structure, it was very, very rigid. 
you know, they were allowed now to have an opinion, to express themselves, and they really started just inventing themselves all over. And, and you know, rather than saying, what does the Bible say that I'm supposed to be, or what is God's plan for my life, you know, they got to start thinking, what do I like? What are my interests? You know, what do I think about this topic or that? And so it became a really fun time of discovery hmm. for all of us. And when I, we were at the mall and my kids are, you know, they're goofing around. They had their friends with them and they're just, you know, kind of cutting up and we were having a great time. But while I was walking through the mall, I felt really odd and I couldn't really ex- figure out. I thought at first maybe I was having like a low blood pressure problem or low blood sugar. It's like, I just don't feel normal. I didn't really feel bad, but I just, you know, so the whole time, you know, we're, we're, we're walking around, we're window shopping, you know, I'm having this conversation with my kids, we're cracking up, but in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, what is this that I feel? It's just bizarre. And it took a while, but all of a sudden I realized that what I was experiencing was energy. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. Like for the first time, I wasn't either. It took me a minute to recognize it because for the first time in decades, I didn't feel like if I just laid down and shut my eyes, I would pass out for a week. Huh. Um, and and what I realized at that point when I started feeling, you know, human again, like I, I had come out of this major fog, but I started looking back, you know, I had been expecting to get depressed and I looked back and I realized now that I wasn't depressed, mm-hmm. I was able to see that all those years I had been depressed. Yeah. You know, I, yeah, I confessed that I had the joy of the Lord, you know, in my heart and I was always talking about how wonderful that was and everything, but it, it wasn't until I got out and I started to experience, you know, actual energy, actual enthusiasm for life and this optimism. And when I saw that and I felt it, then I could look back and say, you know, it's not that I'm going to be depressed. It's like I had been depressed. I just hadn't been able to acknowledge it hmm. because it wouldn't fit with my Christian testimony. Hmm. That's amazing. So what was the reaction of the community? Because you're still embedded in a very Christian area. You were somewhat of a celebrity amongst quiverful moms and the pro-life movement in Nebraska. Was there any kind of backlash from your decision? Well, you know, at first I was just really focused on my kids and getting them, you know, into school, getting them settled, trying to figure out how we were going to do things. Um, but I was also, you know, I still had that newspaper. That was our source of income. And I realized that I could not continue to publish a, mm-hmm. a pro-life Christian newspaper when I myself was no longer a Christian. Right. And I thought about kind of trying to change the focus of it, make it more liberal, make it more, um, you know, broader focus. But that I realized wasn't going to work in the community. The reason that our paper went over so well is because it's a very conservative community, very Christian. And so I I ended up, um, you know, I had a state editor who was working for the paper, and I said, do you want a paper? Do you want this newspaper? And I basically just turned it over to her and uh, got out. And it was around that time... Um, that I had started the website, no longer quivering. Not I, I had I had no plans of starting a website. I was just going to blog mm-hmm. about my experience, and uh, 
but somebody from our town came across it and contacted our local religion editor, and she called me up and said, you know, I just saw your your story. Um, Catherine Joyce had written an article about our family on Salon.com, and it was called All God's Children, and she basically told about my quiverful experience. And so this religion editor said, would you be interested in doing an interview? Hmm. And I very naively said, sure, why not? <laughs> I mean, I kind of felt an obligation because I knew that people knew who we were. They yeah. were wondering what happened. And so I thought, okay, I'm just going to, you know, tell my story. And I did. And she wrote the article and, and very um, sensational headline. She says, losing her religion. Hmm. Local woman's no longer, no longer quivering in fear of God. And, um, you so know, this and is I, your big outing. Then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Where people were like, oh, we wondered what happened to that family. And wow, you know, she's really gone to the other extreme now. But it was interesting because the the pastor's association in our town called a special meeting to talk about how they were going to deal with that <laughs> situation. Um, how do but, you deal with a problem like Vicky? <laughs> exactly. And, um, you know, we because we were so fundamentalist and, you know, over time we had become more and more insular and more isolated, we had left, you know, pretty much every church in our town that was evangelical, fundamentalist, you know, we had gotten more extreme than them. And so we'd, you know, rejected. And so we had really cut ourselves off from the Christian community, um, you know, personally mm-hmm. anyway. And so there was not really a whole lot of that. I mean, people were curious and, and sometimes I feel like, why did I not just move? You know, mm-hmm. but we were settled. I have a house and it's a nice neighborhood and I knew that I couldn't really afford to take my kids and just, you know, go to Seattle or to <laughs> somewhere where they have, you know, a wonderful, uh, supportive free thought community. Um, so we're kind of stuck there, but I just like, well, okay, I guess you'll, you'll all just have to deal with me and with my story. This is the reality. And it hasn't been too terrible. We had an episode where some of the, the Christians who I was close to during our homeschool times uh, really kind of freaked out on me, very much vilified me. And I think mm. it was just that, you know, because they knew me, they knew my faith was very real. You know, they either had to accept that, yes, I, I could, somebody could be that committed and then go the other way, or they just had to make up a story. Yeah. And that's what they did. It's yeah. it's threatening to them. Yeah, the exactly. very idea that you could uh you could find happiness outside of this, you yes. know, is is a is a threat to them. So you're uh so you start this blog, No Longer Quivering, and you're sharing your story and uh other families like yours are starting to come to this blog. As gawkers at first? At, at or? first, I think it was just a lot of curiosity because mm-hmm. I was very um, vocal in, you know, all of the, the popular quiverful kind of um, magazines above Ruby's um, Encouraging Word, Salt Magazine. All of them had my articles published in them and my testimony. You know, Nancy Campbell has a book called A Change of Heart. Stories of couples who have had reversals from vasectomies and tubal ligations. And our reversal story was mm-hmm. one of the chapters in there. So people knew about us. And, uh, when they, when they started hearing, you know, in, in the forums, the, 
above Ruby's forums, they started saying, poor Vicky, you know, our poor Vicky. We wonder what happened. And, you know, one of the editors of a, of a magazine which had carried our articles, she, or my articles, she wrote a, a editorial that said, it was titled, My Friend Died. Oh, my. And, yeah, and she was talking about me. She had been reading my blog, and she says, I just don't understand this, but what she has suffered is spiritual death, which is the most grievous death of all. And uh, so basically, you know, I was just dead to them. But there were some that were just curious enough, and they came and they started reading, and it resonated with them mm-hmm. because the quiverful lifestyle is exceedingly demanding and it's very hard it's such a an investment in a personal commitment and you put so much of yourself into it and then when you start seeing that the results in your family in your in your marriage mm-hmm. the relationships with your children it's not the rosy picture that you see on 19 kids and counting it it's a struggle and so they had to admit you know the the honest ones anyway said, yeah, this isn't really working out that well for me either. And so they started coming and commenting. And first, you know, very defensive, very well, you know, you were that extreme and we didn't, you know, we're not that extreme uh, because we we have a television in our home or whatever. <laughs> you know? um, but, but yeah, the more that they were there and the more that they were, were reading, it wasn't very long before they, they started getting out too and they started sharing their stories. And so then it became a collection of of stories of women who had been through this lifestyle, and they started telling about the things that that they struggled with and their their health problems and their relationship problems and and the the poverty, hmm. you know, yeah. because it really is not possible to support a family, a, a you know very large family on the single income because the women aren't supposed to be working. Um, you know, they don't accept government aid in any form because they believe that, you know, they're, tr- they're supposed to trust God for their finances. And so they won't take food stamps. They won't take Medicaid. Um, and so, you know, yeah, they end up being very deprived. The, the homeschool neglect that happens because you, you can't keep up with all of it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just way too much of that lifestyle and something's got to fall behind. And usually it's the education of the children that ends up really suffering and the mother's health. And so, you know, the stories that we started writing and it was just, it became a movement yeah. and counter, counter, counter movement, I guess is what you would call it. When the, Young adults who are coming, who are being raised in these homes, when they discovered no longer quivering mm-hmm. and they began reading, they have not known anything else. Mm-hmm. You know, they're raised in this. They're, all of the information is so controlled. So, you know, they only have this very narrow perspective. And so when they start reading the stories and they're like, wow, you know, they feel ripped off. <laughs> they get angry. They're like, you know, my life, I, I was not allowed to have a childhood. I was not allowed to be a teenager. Um, and, you know, a lot of times they've, they've become second parent, second mom, mm-hmm. you know, or, and it's, it's a kind of a very twisted thing. There's such an emphasis on the father-daughter relationships mm-hmm. in Quiverful. That's a huge part of patriarchy. And a lot of times the, the older daughters end up becoming like emotionally second wives for their dads because their moms are so 
strung out, burned out from all of the childcare and everything, that the dad ends up unloading everything and really putting a huge emotional attachment on that older daughter. Hmm. And it gets it gets pretty twisted. <laughs> you have now children taking care of children, which which is something I, I had never thought of. I had never really considered that aspect of the of the of these communities is the burden it would place on the on the older daughters. A lot of the daughters they feel like you know they have such a strong connection. They have even a closer connection to some of their younger siblings than their than their little ones have to their moms. Mm-hmm. And you know I know with my last pregnancy I had such a disastrous delivery. I ended up with a partial uterine rupture. Um, it was, you know, just this horrible emergency C-section. I almost died. The baby almost died. And the recovery from it, it took me a month before I could even really wake up. Mm-hmm. And so my oldest daughter, you know, she had this newborn little baby. And I mean, he was her baby and because she was the one that was conscious to be able to take care of him. And she would bring him to me to nurse, and I wouldn't even wake up for that. Hardly. I could just not get out of bed. And I missed the first month of my my youngest child's life uh, because I was just so wiped out. But my daughter, you know, she was his mommy. And a lot of times when the the older daughters and, and the sons, you know, when they start questioning, when they start saying this isn't right, um, what happens is the families, because they want to protect the, the younger kids that are still in the home, they will basically shun these kids. What? And because they can't allow that, what they consider rebellion, oh. what they consider, you know, it's, there's so much control in those homes that if an older kid starts coming in and saying, you know, I've got questions about this, well, you can't allow that to influence the younger kids. And so they, you know, basically cut them off. And wow. so if you have that, really, really close relationship with your little baby brother that you've been raising, basically, and and then you're just cut out. Yeah. It, it's a very traumatic. And, you know, the these um, these young people, they're starting to write. I The power of telling your story, of mm-hmm. just being able to share and get feedback, you know, it's kind of like this major group therapy thing going on. It's very powerful in being able to process and, you know, just to work through it all and, and say, okay, I wasn't crazy, but what happened was definitely crazy. And no wonder I reacted the way that I did. No yeah. wonder I hated myself. I hated my life. You know, I felt so guilty. I felt so inadequate. You know, I felt like a, such a failure before God because I, I couldn't, you know, fully give mm-hmm. myself to this ideal. And so I always encourage these people to start their own blog. Yeah. You know, start writing yourself. And one of the girls that came, I shouldn't call her a girl, she's a young woman, um, who came and started reading and, and commenting quite a lot on No Longer Quivering. I encouraged her to start writing. And, and I said, you just need your own blog because you are just amazing with everything. She's very articulate, very um, prolific. And so she started Lovejoy Feminism, mm-hmm. and which is on the Atheist channel, channel on um, Pathios website now. And... Uh, it's it's just become, like I said, a phenomenon where there are so many of these young people. And because, you know, they feel ripped off, they, they get angry, but they're also young and they've got this energy. They've got this enthusiasm. 
uh, they've got this idealism still, and so they they get active. Mm-hmm. They've got younger siblings. They know how bad it is. They want to be able to have some protections, and so they're working now to um, you know get some more regulation in the homeschool laws so that mm-hmm. parents don't have that free access to just totally and completely control their children's lives. And mm-hmm. and so it's it's really cool to watch the activism that's going on now. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, you've inspired a movement. This is, I mean, this is totally incredible. totally stumbled on it. But yeah, it's become it, it's way bigger than I am uh, mm-hmm. than just me yeah. now. It's not about me. It's not about Vicky. It's about yeah spiritual abuse survival and that term you just used, spiritual abuse. Um, Define it for me and explain a little bit more what what you mean by spiritual abuse. Spiritual abuse is it's so insidious. It's like regular abuse with God mixed in. It's all, you know, people have struggles. People are trying to figure out and navigate life, and we don't always have the best coping mechanisms. We don't always have the best decision ability, decision making abilities, whatever. We're all trying to to figure things out. And yeah, we can get off path. But what happens with spiritual abuse, what happens when you when you mix faith into it is everything gets redefined. You know, I talk about when women have to are, are in a they find that they're Husbands, their their marriages are very abusive, very um, codependent, and mm-hmm. you know, um, and you get this dysfunctional marriage. But what happens then is the questions completely change. Rather than saying, you know, he's really hurting me, what should I do? When you mix God into the the equation, then. It's almost like you can't even call it abuse. You don't have the language because things, you know, the dominance, the control, the manipulation, all of that is spiritualized. It's all given chapter and verse, and it's all made to sound like God's will. Mm -hmm. And so then you've got a woman who wants very much to do right, to do her best for her family, for her children, um, for God, be right with her creator to fulfill the purpose that he has for her life. It just takes your decision-making into a whole another realm where you have to consider the will of God. You have to consider, you know, is this just God testing my faith? Does he want me to, should I be considering my own welfare when there are bigger and grander things? You know, you've got all eternity to think about. And is my suffering here... You know, if I just walk away, then how is God going to work in my husband's life? You know, is is God wanting to use me to somehow get through to him? And it just so complicates the whole situation. And it really is very insidious because it takes some very good, I think, very noble motivations and uses them against the person, uses them against you so that... It's crippling hmm. in its effect, and you're trapped. But it, it gets worse than that because what happens then is you are taught about acceptance of self-denial, and you start to get to the point where if you can if you can see good in this situation, if you can see where God is using it 
for a bigger purpose, that he has some eternal um, scheme in mind that you're just, you know, a part of and he is using you for his glory, then you almost, you know, when you see a situation where you could get out, you could make a difference, stand up and say no more. But would you do that? Because if you if you do, are you then thwarting the plans of the Holy Spirit? You know, and so not only do you start to accept it, but you start to even find opportunities to um, basically cooperate in your own oppression mm-hmm. to say, okay, well, I need to submit myself to this situation, accept it, embrace it, even thank God for it because – he, he is being glorified in my sufferings. It's such a twisted situation. It's it's amazing that anyone gets out of it, quite frankly. You've obviously, through your blog, you've encountered a lot of people who've had experiences like you. Uh, I'm kind of curious about some of the other experiences, people who are in these communities. And um, I mean, what are some of the stories you've heard that that surprised or shocked even you? Wow, it's it's amazing to see how completely twisted it gets. There is a, a website that you can go to. I remember when I read um, Carolyn Jessup's book, Escape. Mm-hmm. She was in the um, fundamentalist Mormon sect. And I remember reading her experiences. I was like, wow, we were doing all of this, you know, no mm-hmm. birth control, having, you know, the patriarchy, et cetera. And the only real difference that, that you can see is the polygamy. Mm-hmm. Well, but polygamy is biblical. And and the quiverful people are starting to think about that. Really? They're not saying, you know, the thing about quiverful is like if you find a, a hard verse that is really is uh, outrageous in our society, in our in our times, rather than reinterpret or dismiss or whatever, they will say, okay, that's there. We have to, we have to deal with this. And there's actually a, a website called biblicalfamilies.org where they are embracing polygamy. Wow. And they are, yeah. So, um, and I've had, uh, one woman who was talking about her husband, you know, once she finally got the courage, the, the, and it, I don't know, we talk about courage and sometimes it's more a matter of just desperation and, and self, you know, preservation, just mere survival to get out. Um, and when she finally got to that point where she left her husband, he has taken her to court over 120 times. Over just, you know, amazingly, he knows the system. He's a lawyer. And he works it against her and has just badgered and harassed her, you know, continually. Wow. And uh, so, yeah, there are some really outrageous stories of, of things that have happened. With the polygamy thing, you know, it makes you wonder. It, it sounds like it is partially this just almost a point of pride to adopt a radical position if the Bible says it. But is some of this, you know, from the just – the real needs of raising that many children. Yeah. <laughs> you, and, you know, the, the stress on the family. Well, bring in extra help. <laughs> it, and, you know, that is part of it too. It's just coping strategies. But, um, the thing about the thing that makes it really difficult when you get into this fundamentalist mindset is that when these really outrageous abuses are occurring, 
it's really hard for a woman, a Christian woman who is very committed to, you know, following biblical precepts to look at that and say that's wrong because there are a lot of really crappy relationships and a lot of abuses in the Bible. Yeah. You know, you look at the patriarchs and the stuff that they inflicted on their families and on their wives. And so it's really hard to say, I shouldn't, you know, this is wrong. Yeah. I shouldn't tolerate it because, I mean, Sarah did. Hmm. And yep. God praised her for it. You know, she got a chapter, uh, she got a mention in the chapter of faith. And so. <laughs> I don't know. I'm speechless. I don't, I don't know <laughs> what to say. This stuff makes me upset just hearing about it. Well, what's on the horizon for you and your, your family? It sounds like this has given you – you're leaving this context now and the starting this, this online community and everything has given you a kind of uh, – a, a new take on life. Wh- what are your goals? Where are you planning on, on taking taking this? Uh, you know, at this point, I'm just kind of along for the ride. It, mm-hmm. Like I said, it has become way bigger than me. And I am really enjoying watching and encouraging the young people, you know, with their efforts. And I'm doing everything that I can to support that. You know, I I, I do the speaking when I can and just to promote and let people know what's going on. And, you know, a lot of our community, a lot of the support is that's happening is very behind the scenes you know we have a secret facebook group that we're very you know careful mm-hmm. about privacy and stuff and so we're working you know that way and helping women to get out and a lot of their times you know they've got some major major obstacles mm-hmm. come you know getting out of an abusive situation is yeah. hard enough but if you have never worked or even gone to college if you have half a dozen or more kids to bring out with you it, it is a huge, huge undertaking. But the the really awesome thing about it is watching these women do it. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, they've already been living this really impossible lifestyle. They're there. already amazing people just by, as nails, yeah, you know? by, by being able to endure and, yes. and, and, uh, and so take care of When it comes family. time to leave, they buck up and they get mm-hmm. the job done. And they're awesome. They're just amazing to watch everything that they overcome to get their kids to a safe and a healthy place. Mm-hmm. I just applaud them. I'm just, Wow. Well, it's inspiring, and your story is so inspiring. Th- thank you so much, Vicki, for everything that you do and for sharing this very important story of yours, even though I'm sure it's difficult sometimes. And thank you very much for joining us here on Reasonable Doubts. Thank you for having me. And now is one of the most brutal transitions we've ever done on this show. Let's turn to our shit list. And this one is literally about fecal matter. Turns out uh, holy water may be harmful to your health, uh, says a new study. And this comes to us from an article from uh, Good Morning America. Austrian uh, researchers uh, tested, what is it, 21 springs in Austria and 18 fonts um, of in, holy water. In Vienna. In Vienna. And found samples containing up to 62 million bacteria per milliliter of water, none of it safe to drink. 
quote, tests indicated 86% of the holy water commonly used in baptism ceremonies and to wet congregants' lips Ew. was infected with common bacteria found in fecal matter, such as E. coli, several others that I can't pronounce, and uh, – <laughs> These can, quote, uh, lead to diarrhea, cramping, abdominal pain, and fever. Maybe even worse. There but keep nitrates. pouring it on your baby's heads. Yeah. yeah. And then putting it on your mouth. Well, and that's, that's the thing is infants in particular are at risk. They found yes. nitrates from fertilizer in there, mm-hmm. which uh, can cause serious illness or even death mm-hmm. in infants. Um, so, I mean, again, this is not – it's not like anybody was intending this. Right. Um, this is just what happens when you have people dipping their hands into the same right. pile of water. Yeah. But of course, the belief is that this is blessed water. You know, it's 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 a kind of part of a purification rite, really, for mm-hmm. Catholics, and um, it's not sanitary. Not even close. Saying holy words in Latin and waving your hand a little bit is no substitution for a good water filter. They're going to equip the priests with a Brita filter. Well, they they actually already did. There there was a little contraption that oh, they you, had a picture on this article. Gotta of. give me a break. Yeah, it's oh, it's a little on. holy water dispenser. It's like plastic. It, it looks kind of like one of those automatic blow dryers, uh, mm. like hand dryers, in the uh, you know you might find in the bathroom somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's got a little crucifix on it on the front. But it, it totally it totally ruins the aesthetic, though. Absolutely. I mean, it, it yeah, it it, yeah. it makes it go from like something that feels like sacred and profound to like you know walk up, get your squirt Squeaky. type of thing. This holy yeah. water brought to you by Dyson. So I don't think too many people are going to be rushing to adopt this thing for aesthetic reasons, but yeah. they probably should. They the, definitely the should. Researchers recommended that priests, you know, regularly regularly change the holy water and put up signs to tell congregants that holy water is dangerous. Basically, oh my God. wow, uh, that would so, be the best thing ever, yeah. wouldn't it? Though? Yeah, or, you know what? Don't touch the water. Just so you know, eighty six percent of this stuff yeah. uh, has been found to have fecal if, matter. If they washed their hands before they used it that would be a big help yeah but i mean like still, you gonna, i mean wash your hands before you go to the holy water that's like wiping your ass before you take a shit exactly <laughs> right and, and, so, and to put this in perspective beaches close for this amount of e coli in the water is that right? true they, they will close down for 86 percent i'm saying uh, that's, no, no, that's no, the, yeah that's that's different. the number of uh, percentage of them that that has it but when e coli levels are too high at a beach they close it down these people are putting on their baby's heads, are putting on their lips. What levels beaches are are typically closed down? You find out, you know, how close how that compares. Yeah, like to, like what's enough to drain a pool, and how does that compare yeah, to yeah, this? Right. Yeah, oh, should have gotten on that before we came into the studio. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? I'm not that big on numbers. I just didn't wake. <laughs> I didn't wake up this morning going like, I need to find out how much poo you can have in your pool. Well, we need to put these into like really intuitive categories. Then. <laughs> yeah. Ironically, I usually do research on fecal matter uh, in the morning, but I was—I uh, had class this morning, so I, I didn't get my chance. But uh, that's because he has a little kid. Uh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> for, for people who are going to imagine you, yeah, dicing up <laughs> stool samples, I uh, should tell them why. I, I didn't say that's not true. Um, but you got a really uh, shitty cutting board. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Well, on that note, uh, we're gonna. End this episode. In the meantime, um, 
You can catch us at doubtcast.org or freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts. Um, hey, I encourage you folks to go to iTunes and write us a review. I haven't checked those out recently. Have any of you checked out the iTunes reviews? Yeah, some really cool ones yeah. lately. We're yeah. getting some Thanks, good ones. Guys. Uh, keep doing all that. Good inside. It helps. It, it bumps up uh, our our searchability on iTunes. And now, and, and it's directly morale. proportional to podcast output as well. That is absolutely say. true. No, it's not. Um, <laughs> and now, thanks to uh, our own Justin Schieber, we're also available on Stitcher, which is a thing that um, which is a pretty popular podcast. It's really popular. Thing, so. I don't I don't know And we've how to been use Stitcher, I've been I've been harassed about this on Twitter time in and time again. People have so been asking there, for a long you time. got it. Enjoy. We're, we're on Stitcher because I know a lot of people don't like the iTunes. Uh, we're on Stitcher now. So get it there, get it from our website. Uh, email us with your questions, comments, challenges. I don't know if Stitcher has a a place where you can write reviews or to if grade. they do if they do please please, please. especially because we are currently featured in the new podcast section because mm-hmm. we're new but uh, if you like Stitcher and you like us get on there and, and help us out so other people can find us but you can email us at doubtcast at gmail and we will be back soon with more reasonable doubts your skeptical guide to religion. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.